to not grow old. Uh, and I don't mean in that Peter Pan sense of, you know, always staying a child. I'm, I'm talking about being able to grow to physical maturity, you know, hitting that peak age for strength and well-being and then staying there. Uh, you know, for men, that peak age uh, is somewhere between 26 and 33 years old. For women, it's between 17 and 24. And, and then it's all downhill from there. Um, Actually, <laughs> actually, uh, in most cases, you can, you can maintain pretty close to that peak for about 20 years if you work at it hard. I mean, not, not exactly at the peak, but close to it. But uh, when middle age hits, uh, no matter what you do, you're going to lose 5% of muscle function and performance per decade. That's just the way it works. You know, I didn't uh, really think too much about what it'd be like to get old when I was younger because, you know, you, you pretty much always assume that you're going to feel good, uh, that you'll be strong and have energy. You'll wake up every morning refreshed and re- rejuvenated. But the older I get, the easier it is to start dra- daydreaming about what it would be like not to get older. To think about what it would feel like uh, to just be able to look up and st- at that mountain and say, yeah, I think I'll climb up there. Uh, or, or to look at a flight of stairs and not think, is there an alternative route somewhere? You know, uh, this type of thing. You know that your sense of hearing starts to decline by your late 20s. Your sense of eyesight, not until your late 40s, but then it starts uh, going down. I mean, pretty much your whole body hits its peak fairly early and then starts to decline. And so that's one of the reasons that I am so looking forward to eternity. Because God has promised us a new heavens, new earth, eternal life with new physical bodies. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of details on it, but the way I picture it is that we are going to have that peak physical performance forever and ever and ever. Awesome time. But until that moment, we have to deal with this concept of getting older, which brings us to Joshua chapter 23. The leader, the general of the campaign to conquer the promised land is now an old coot. There in 23... We get to see this as it starts off in verse... If you haven't opened your Bibles, open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 21, or 23, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2 say this. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I'm old, advanced in years. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And God, we pray that you would do all those things for us this morning, but we want to be trained in righteousness that we could be equipped for every good work. So God, speak to us this morning. Strengthen us and challenge us where need be. In Jesus' name, amen. So I mentioned last week that the last, the final three chapters of Joshua each open with Joshua 
uh, summoning a particular group before him and then giving a charge and a challenge to that group. And last week it was the warriors from the two and a half tribes that had settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And even though their territory was over there and had already been conquered and won, they came across the Jordan with their brothers to help them uh, subdue Canaan. And when that job was completed and the other nine and a half tribes had been allotted their territories and given their places to settle in, well, then Joshua called them to himself and and, uh, thanked them for their faithful service and sent them away with that strong charge to to be careful to remain faithful to God. Well, now this week, a new group of people is being summoned to Joshua, and it's all the leaders of Israel as he listed out there, the chiefs, the heads, all this type of thing. And and the setting, at least time-wise, has changed quite a bit from chapter 22 to 23, which is why it starts with that phrase, now it came about after many days. So how many days? Well, we can't tell for sure because the Bible doesn't give us an exact chronology. Um, According to the ancient Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, Joshua was 40 years old when they left Egypt, when the exodus began out of Egypt. Now, if that number is true, and again, that's not in the Bible, so we don't know for sure, but if that's true, and it was you know, handed down uh, by Jewish scribes uh, generation after generation, and they were a pretty meticulous group, so there's a reasonable chance that that's, that that's uh, accurate, um, that would mean when the campaign to begin conquering the, the uh, promised land, Joshua would have been about 80 years old. And he was the general. He was the leader. Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but it, it, the, the uh, fairly safe assumption is that God preserved, miraculously preserved Joshua's stamina and strength just as he had for Caleb. Remember how it said that Caleb had the same amount of strength? It doesn't tell us about that with Joshua, but it it seems to be a fairly safe assumption that he went in leading this group 80 years old, but more as a 40-year-old man in strength and stamina. But whatever the case, uh, verse 1 then tells us that many days had passed since the end of the conquest. And as we're going to get to see next week in the final chapter, and spoiler alert here, by the way, in case you haven't read the rest of the book, Joshua dies. You know, I don't want to spoil the end of the story for anybody, but that's, that, it happens. And, and uh, the way he puts it, he's gone the way of all the earth. And, um, and we're told that he was 110 years old when that happened. So that definitely qualifies as being, again, as verse 1 says, advanced in years. So if you add all those numbers together and, and start to figure things out, it, it appears that Joshua has called this group to himself approximately 20 or 25 years after the end of the conquest of Canaan. So a big chunk of time has passed between the last verse of 22 and the first verse of 23. And during that time, each of the tribes were supposed to continue on working on driving out any remaining inhabitants of the land. At the conquest, all of the major strongholds had been vanquished, and those people had been killed or or driven out. Uh, And they were all taken care of to the point that any active resistance against the occupation of of Israel in the land was, was non-existent. It was no longer there. And that's why Joshua was able to say there at the beginning that the Lord had given Israel rest on all 
sides from their enemies. But there are still all these little pockets of Canaanite residents living hither and thither and yon throughout Israel. And so even if the Israelites were to work on it diligently to drive them out, it would still be a long, slow process. And God actually planned it that way. I mean, clear back in Exodus chapter 23, when, when the children of Israel were still camped out by Mount Sinai where they got the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses received some information from God about how this occupation of the land would play out. And, and God said in Exodus uh, 23 verse 29, I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. So see, from the very beginning in God's plan, it was never meant to be a one-and-done uh, type of deal. Uh, once the most powerful and aggressive and, and the most wicked uh, of the people had been dealt with in God's judgment, then there would be a time period where both the Israelites and these little tiny pockets of Canaanite residents would be dwelling in the land simultaneously. And you may remember back to when we were preaching about dividing up the land into the 12 territories for the tribes that, that I told you that it was the responsibility of each individual tribe to drive the people out in their territory. And, and the way that would work is, you know, it's just very natural. When they would first come in and settle, they're going to settle in the cities of those major nations that they had already defeated, right? I mean, there was good homes there, already uh, cultivated land, everything was in good shape. And so they would naturally uh, settle there first, or at least very nearby those cities. And then, slowly, the more adventuresome of those groups would begin to work their way out. Oh, it's too crowded around here. I need some elbow room. Let's move a little farther out. And those guys, as they began to spread out, that's when the tribes would then continue to work on driving the people out from their territories as they, as they continue to spread out more and more. And that knowledge, as, as we understand that, helps us to understand what Joshua was saying to these leaders in, in chapter 23. Look at verses 4 and 5. He said, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. The Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. In, so see, in, in the same breath, he is talking about uh, the, the nations that remain, the peoples that remain, and those that have already been driven out. But God was reminding them that the plans and the purposes of God have not changed, and neither had His promise that He would take care of the people. So they were supposed to continue doing that, and, and uh, God was going to go before them and ensure victory in that. And because of the reality that there was still that work to be done, even after 20 or more years now when Joshua is addressing these guys, uh, because of that, Joshua gives them this, this clear and unyielding command in verse 6. He says, Be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So did you notice, first of all, that even in this very early stage in Israel's history, it was the written 
word of God that was put forth as the authoritative manual for living a godly life. If they wanted to know what they should do, how they should do it, how they should live in order to please God, it was to His written word. The book of the law of Moses, that's all they had at that point. That's what they should turn to. And you know, the same is true for me and you today, right? Not that we, you know, live under all those same Old Testament laws that, that the Jews had to live under there. I mean, many of those laws were, were given to them for a specific time and place and specific circumstances and to them as a nation, and God had certain laws for them, you know, such as not trimming the corners of your beard or not wearing uh, fabrics with mixed threads, you know, different uh, wool and, and, and flax or, you know, uh, the cotton or these types of things. You couldn't mix your fibers that um, uh, don't always seem to make sense to us. They were, they were given in order to keep them separate and distinct from the nations around them. So, so those things that might seem odd to us, like, well, what difference does it make how you trim your beard, uh, actually were given in juxtaposition to the practices uh, of the pagan nations around them that day uh, as they were worshiping and honoring false gods. So just kind of like a gang member, you know, think of L.A. and New York or wherever else you'll find gangs. They might use an article of clothing or a hairstyle or a tattoo or some other type of, of distinguishing mark to identify that you belong to that gang. Well, these pagan people were using those same type of things to say, yeah, we belong to this God. And therefore, that's why all of those things, some of those things that don't make any sense to us, that's why those things were forbidden in Israel, to keep them separate from that. And those national laws like that, um, they're no longer applicable to us. But the principles behind them, of course, are. And the moral teachings of God's Word, they still are. The Bible still is our sole authoritative guide for Christian living. It's what we have to turn to. In fact, as soon as someone would tell you that they have some new revelation from God about, you know, how you're supposed to live or that's supposed to enhance or, or make your life even better and better, that's a time when you ought to go, hmm, there's a problem here. Um, every single cult that has ever started that claims Christian roots has started because someone professed new revelation from God apart from his written word or in addition to it. I mean, just think of the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witness, the Christian science, or the relatively new one, at least in this area, the Iglesia in Cristo. You guys heard about that? They had a big forum on it here just a couple of weeks ago up in Rapid City. It's a, it's a new, again, new in this area. It's actually spreading on the reservations in South Dakota and other places uh, around the state. It was uh, started in 1914 in the Philippines by a guy named Felix Manalo who said that he received revelation from God that he was now God's last messenger. And among other things, he denies the divinity of Jesus Christ and the personal work of Jesus Christ for salvation. In fact, he says that only through membership in his church, along with keeping certain rules that he has established, such as no eating the new one, 
can't eat any of that. Uh, uh, it, that's the only means of salvation. In case you're wondering what denuguan is, uh, that is stew made from uh, uh, pig blood. And, and if you were thinking of rushing out after the service and eating some, can't do it according to Felix. Um, now, now, to safeguard against uh, getting sucked into some uh, false way of worshiping God, Joshua uh, makes it clear right here that we need to stick to the written word of God. And that's why he uses that phrase, so that you may not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You know, there are so many false paths to follow out there. And it was true back then with the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch, and it's true today. And if you took just verse 6, just took it out of its context and, and stated it, you might you know, get the impression that he's talking about more a list of a, 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 a do's and don'ts, right? You know, when it says to keep and to do, that brings to mind uh, things like, you know, don't tell a lie and do love your neighbor and, and don't steal her stuff and, 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 and do remember the Sabbath. So you might think of it as more of a list like this. And, and then, so maybe you think, maybe I'm reading into it when I'm talking about uh, uh, false religions and, and, and pushing my own agenda when I'm saying it's talking about the pure, undefiled worship of God. But actually, that comes from Joshua himself in the next two verses. Uh, verse 7 in the negative, verse 8 in the positive, talk about those things. Look at verse 7 first. So that, here's why you keep and to do, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve by them, or bow down to them. So you see, he was guarding them against false worship. When we see the word associate, we, we might get the impression that, you know, they could have no contact at all between those people, but that really isn't what he was talking about. Uh, just like today, he's not talking that we should somehow go out of the world. But the idea was that the word associate really means uh, to go among them and become like them or act like them. And I think that's what the rest of the verse makes clear. When it says not to mention their God, it means that we wouldn't talk about it, him or her, the goddess or goddess, as if they truly existed. And swearing by it is the same idea, only a step further. I mean, if you swear by something, you, you, you only swear by something that matters, right? Or is legitimate. Not by something that's fake. That, that's why, you know, in all the old mobster movies, right? You always have these, these uh, people say, I swear on my mother's grave, right? Because mom matters. And, and, and so uh, it's real. In the last two phrases, to bow down and to serve them are speaking directly to worship. So you see really a progression in there, right? You know, first it's just talking about them in, in your everyday life, and, and then it's moving to something important, something that matters, swear by it, and finally it comes to that stage of worship, which means allegiance to it. And to avoid that slippery slope and that pitfall, Joshua then gives this firm command. And to reinforce it, he moves back into the positive in verse 8 here where he says, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. So in other words, he's saying, yeah, you, you guys, you're, you're doing a great job. Uh, you've been staying true to God, but you have to keep going for the future. And the way to do that 
is to, to do and to keep the Word of God. And because that's so important, he, he keeps finding new ways to repeat it. If you move down to verse 11, he says, So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Diligent heed means that you're paying attention, that you're being very intentional about what you're doing. And maybe you don't think of loving the Lord your God in the same vein as you know, keeping and doing, you know, following His commandments. But Jesus Himself tied the two together in John 14, 15 when He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. See, the truth is, Joshua could be standing in front of us today giving this exact same message to us, couldn't he? Right? He could be telling us, hey, look at what God has brought, how far God's brought you. Think about the things that He has done for you in your life. Remember the ways that He has fought for you and led you. In fact, Joshua could say all of that and he could say to us what he said to them in verse 14. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. He could tell us these things. And, and yet he would also have to give us that same word of warning that he gave them to be very firm to keep and to do, to cling to the Lord your God, to be diligent to love God. Why would he need to do that? Well, because he knows and God knows the propensity of our hearts to drift. Especially when we're surrounded by people worshiping other gods. And the influence of our culture is tremendously strong. It, it, it is a powerful magnet that, tr- that threatens to pull our heart away, tugging at us from uh, drawing us away from that pure devotion to Christ. Mm-hmm. And the problem is when we drift, when we become lackadaisical, uh, when we are half-hearted or worse in our obedience and devotion to God, There are consequences. And for Israel, those consequences look like this. It says, Know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out those nations from before you, but they will become a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Basically, he is saying in that paragraph that they would suffer, defeat, discomfort, and disgrace. And think, I think, those same things happen to us today. When we drift, there will be defeat in your spiritual life. And that defeat can take many forms, perhaps emotional in terms of discouragement or depression or disappointment in God, you know, because, hey, my life's not turning out the way I thought it would. Or it could be that God is going to block your goals or bring frustration to your plans. I mean, He allows defeat in your life. And besides defeat, God could bring in spiritual discomfort to you, thorns in the eyes, a whip to your back as a means of discipline. Proverbs 3.12 says, For whom the Lord loves, He reproves disciplines, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. God will not hesitate to bring extremely uncomfortable and even painful things into our lives as a means of correction and discipline for us. 
And if we persist in, in moving in that path away from God, he may, he may even bring disgrace into our life. But it's all in an effort to draw us back to Him again, to turn us back to that good and faithful way, to put us in that right place so that we can truly enjoy His blessings. That's what He wants. Now, please understand, this does not mean that every time something bad happens in your life, that means, you know, God is bringing some discipline in. There, there are multiple reasons why we go through hardships and trials. But at the very least, whenever you are facing some difficulty, whenever some pain comes into your life, use it as an opportunity to evaluate where you're at spiritually and, and test have I drifted away? Because God does use those things to draw us back to Him. He, he, he wants to use those times to make sure that we are on track. So rather than having to wait for a time of discipline or something like that to evaluate that, how about the idea of listening to and implementing this charge from Joshua from the get-go? Right? So we don't have to be in that position because that's what Joshua was telling them right? Here's what you need to do. Stay this way or else there will be these consequences. So for us, why don't we be very firm, be very firm to keep and to do all that's written in God's Word, to cling to the Lord. Isn't it funny how how our grip from the Lord can easily get transposed to something else in this world? Cling to the Lord and to take diligent heed to love God. If we do those three things, rather than being swayed or pulled in by the evil uh, culture around us, we will actually become a powerful influence for Christ on them. And isn't that what God has called us to do as Christians? That's Joshua's challenge. Keep and do. Cling. Take heed, diligent heed to love the Lord your God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this challenge that we can receive from Joshua. God, we thank you that as we set our hearts and minds on you, you strengthen us to be able to do these things, that you make it possible and you're the one who gives the victory. So God, we pray that as a people, we would be those who choose to stand firm, to be careful, to do to cling, and to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.